If you have a Bible this morning and you'll read uh, where we intend to, uh, turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. And we're going to confine our remarks at the beginning of our message to just verse 36 and verse 37 of this. But we'll look at the event in totality that's taking place here. So Acts chapter 2. Thank you. Beginning in verse 36. It reads this. This is Peter preaching. The last words that he says here in this sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That'll conclude our reading today. The title of our message this morning, based upon this scripture reading and what's taking place here at large, is entitled, When the Numbness Wears Off. When the Numbness Wears Off. Now, most likely, everyone here, or most people here, have had a time in their life where they had to have even a small procedure done. And you had to have some an anesthetic or some other medicine put on, a topical put on, where they had to cut on you or do something in some in varying degrees. So what it does is it numbs you. And uh, I had a number of, had my wisdom teeth worked on. It was very painful. And uh, whenever I was having it done, I was quite shocked at how aggressive the dentist was, and, uh, but what was even more shocking was that I couldn't feel it. I knew what he was doing in general, but I couldn't feel a thing. But about three in the morning, one day, one morning, the numbness wore off. And as a grown man, I was unashamedly crying from pain and called the emergency dentist line and said, I need help now. Um, almost, I, was, I, I, I just shudder to think of the pain that I was in after the fact when the numbness wore off. And... Much of what we read to you this morning in verse 37, the reaction of these people is when the numbness of sin wore off. Now to give you this story at large, it's really important to understand what we mean here because I want you to get the analogy very directly that our hearts are often numb. 
And our hearts are numbed by sin. We grow callous, unaffected by our own sin and by the consequences which are forthcoming from our own sin. And that happens in a plethora of ways. When we spend time with people who sin, that peer interaction rubs our hearts with sin and it calluses us and suddenly it doesn't bother us very much. The repetitive practice. Anyone who's learned to play an instrument like the guitar that's stringed knows that the only way to make that pain of holding the frets go away is to just keep doing it. And the more you do it, the more your fingers grow calloused and it suddenly doesn't hurt anymore. And sin is that way. Very often we sin and we sin and at first when we initially begin down that path, it doesn't hurt. Or excuse me, it hurts and we notice it and we're convicted by it. But then as is the case, we do it more often and, and we begin to do these, really, these little psychological tricks. We look at other people who are worse than us and that numbs it a little bit. And we say, you know what? I, I do this and I shouldn't, but that person does worse. Or we find that the cause of our sin is not our own heart. It's what somebody else has done to us. So because this person has sinned against me, thus I am sinning in that way. And that mentality numbs our hearts from the real impact that sin and the pain that sin will inevitably bring us. It delays its effects. Sometimes we refuse to be alone with our own thoughts. I think that's a common one today. That Satan has helped to invent endless number of distractions. And so there's hardly moments of the day where your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart is not calloused by involvement in other things. But I want to say directly this morning, the numbness will wear off. There will come a point where no longer can you not feel the consequences to sin. And to illustrate this point, let's consider the people that the Apostle Peter is speaking to. Because in this event, there's a a whole bunch going on here. There's a huge gathering of people that have gathered at the temple to celebrate a feast. And they've come from all parts of the world. And if you go to verses 9 through 11, you'll learn that this composition of people were mostly Jewish people in Jerusalem... But they were Jewish people who had traveled from all throughout the Roman Empire to come and celebrate this historically Jewish feast. And so it lists in verses 9 through 11, there are people from all different ethnicities, or rather from all different cultures, from one ethnicity that are coming to one place to worship and to practice or celebrate this feast. And so in verses 9 through 11, it tells us there are 15 different languages represented there. And so likely the diversity of clothing and the languages and the appearance of people was very different. But they've all come with one intent. That's one group of people who are present. But that's not the group of people who in verse 37 the Bible's talking about. Because there's also another group of people that is identified here. And that is people 
who had killed God. Some 40 or 50 days earlier, this innocent man, which we've studied on Wednesday nights as we came into his trial setting, clearly innocent of all charges. Yet the prosecution prevailed. And he was torturously put to death in such a way that he was not even recognizable as a human being. And yet people, as his death is carried out, and as his resurrection occurs, people are progressively, from those Roman soldiers sitting at the foot or standing at the foot of the cross, witnessing it to others that would come to his tomb or be revealed to them who he was, they are progressively realizing more and more, no, this was not just an ordinary man. There was something unique and special about this man. And yet, they're numb. They create this conspiracy that the apostles went and they stole the body of Jesus and they paid off people to help um, prolong the numbness of their sin. And yet, Peter gets up and God opens his mouth. And it tells us in the very beginning that he begins to preach the gospel. And we don't know exactly what he said. But him and the other apostles begin to tell this diverse crowd about Jesus. And something miraculous begins to occur. That they begin to speak in their native language. But all of these 15 different languages begin to hear the message in their own language. So imagine this morning, we've got all different ethnicities of people and they're all clothed different in their uh, custom and according to their style. And you know for certainty as you've come to welcome some of them this morning that they don't even understand welcome. They don't even understand hello. And yet one person begins to preach and everyone begins to understand them in their own language. And so these men who were guilty of crucifying Jesus begin to try to make another excuse and numb the reality of what was going on. They say, oh, ignore these men. They're drunk. They're drunk with new wine. They're just babbling. Don't listen to them. And then God begins to powerfully speak to this congregation of people. Peter stands up, and on behalf of all of them, He says, brothers, we are not drunk as you suppose us to be. But this day, this moment right here, God hundreds of years ago prophesied would occur. And this is the fulfillment from what God has ordained. And so he takes the book of Joel chapter 2 and he begins to reveal to this people that no, it was not them being carried away with new wine and drunken in their own selves, but rather that the Holy Spirit of God had descended upon the church and that God was powerfully speaking to all of these people whom God had particularly gathered together to hear this message. And so Peter is saying, you are here for a reason and God prophesied and determined that it was going to happen Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So you ought to give heed to what is being spoken. And that chilling reality remains with us today. 
You are here for a reason. And you are under the sound of the gospel for a reason. And as Wanda began to tell about the blessings, if you really consider for a moment the overwhelming blessings and the odds of which would lead you to a time and a place right now, the statistics and likelihood is mind-boggling that we would actually be here together. Not unlikely, almost impossible. And yet with God... All things are possible. With God, all things are purposeful, directed. Yes, we have intention. You know, that's one of the amazing things about God is that God can grant to us freedom. And yet his knowing how we will use his freedom, our freedom, he can still coordinate what he desires to occur. Isn't that incredible? Like God says, you do what you want, but I'm still going to accomplish in you what I want. So you can go ahead and sin, and you can go do these things. But in the end, there are certain things, not all things, because there are some things that God wants that doesn't occur. But there are some things where there's no way you're going to mess it up. Because I've determined it's going to happen. So here in Acts chapter 2, he says, now, now notice here, one of the ways that they try to dismiss what's happening is they make a false accusation against them. You're drunk. You know, my wife and I were talking the other day about, uh, about preaching hell. You don't hear it a lot today. People preaching hell. And the, the, the times that I have preached hell, almost always there is this inherent mindfulness because of the way our culture responds to such messages. And I've even heard discussion before that preachers are trying to scare people, intimidate people, fear monger. And listen, I've witnessed it myself. I've witnessed preachers get up, teachers get up and try to perceivably coordinate some reaction in the crowd. And listen, this morning, there are many eloquent speakers which can preach flowery messages or purposeful messages in order to get a response from the crowd. But very often I think what has happened is because people are afraid, because ministers are afraid of being accused of that, people often stop short of the consideration and the proclamation of the truth that hell exists and that no everybody who does not repent of sin will spend an eternity there. Listen, that's not a scare tactic. That's a reality. And it is essential that those things be proclaimed along with all of the grand truth that the Bible offers for our benefit. Hell is real. And if you pause for a moment and you really dwell on the reality of hell, even the very incomplete thought is so terrifying you can't think about it long. So they accuse him of being drunk. And very often people accuse loved ones who try to witness to them, preachers who try to preach to them. They make these accusations. Here's your motive. You know, ironically, that usually comes from people who says, don't, don't judge anybody. And then suddenly they know exactly what my motive is and what your motive is. 
right? That you're just trying to get more church members and you're just trying to do this and you're just trying to do that. Listen, I don't care about any of those things. What I care about is the condition of your heart with God. And if you get right with God and you never darken the doors of this church again, that matters most to me above all. They make these accusations, but usually, almost always, the root of false accusations is a desire to numb and to secure their own heart from the powerful truth that is bludgeoning them. They don't want to consider hell. They don't want to think about their loved ones going there. They don't want to think about the the awful consequences to their own sin, whether they be saved or lost. And so what do we do? We make false accusations and say, you know what? You're just, you're out for this and you're out for that. And then we dismiss it and we move on. And Peter confronts that. He says, no, that's not the case at all. Because listen, there's going to come a point. You know, our, our country's been dealing with this national debt, right? For the last week or two, the debt ceiling. And it just is always extraordinary to me. Like, guys, it's, it's going to come around again. Until you deal with the problem. It's always going to come back. And it is a problem of our own doing. And listen, this is the same with the message of the gospel. No matter how far removed you get from it, you will always be brought back to the realities that we are confined by as finite human beings. I've got to deal with death. Lost or saved, you have to accept the reality. You are going to die. You have to accept that reality. And it is to your advantage to deal with that and to be mindful of that as often and as soon as you possibly can. And so Peter says, now, you can accuse me of that. You can justify your own actions by that. But that is not the case. I am speaking the truth to you that has been sent from God. You know, that's one of the interesting things about what we believe at this church. And I say this with modesty because I realize this affects what I'm doing right now. The idea that we propose about the preaching of the gospel is not that you just hire a man to go study the Bible and then come regurgitate its contents to you. We don't believe that. We're not looking for scholars. We're not looking for men who can say, you know what? I had this really fun experience with God and I feel like I would be really good at at trying to tell people about him. That's not what we suppose is supposed to happen with the proclamation of his word. Now, here's what we believe. God divinely calls people to proclaim the truth. He seeks those people out. He calls them just like he did the apostle Peter. He went out to the Sea of Galilee and there Peter was busy about fishing and starting his own business, had his own ambitions. And then God calls him to come and to follow him. And then that man spends time with Jesus and he learns from him and he watches him and he's changed by him. And Jesus teaches him, you know what preceded this day? Peter sat at Jesus' feet for 40 straight days learning what he had to say. That's Acts chapter 1. And then, I can tell you from my perspective, here's what happens. There becomes this, you know, there's a part when you start reading the scripture, you're like, wow, that's really neat. 
Wow, that's really cool. Man, I want to tell somebody about that. That's really neat. And then there comes this point where, man, it's burning inside of me. Like, there's this burning inside of me as a minister of the gospel that, like, I can't just share it with my wife or share it with my Sunday school class and, and be okay. I want to tell people. And there is this deep desire and burning that is never satisfied. I dream about preaching. I dream about it. I dream sometimes about preaching to people who my heart longs to be saved. And so here's what happens very often. What's supposed to happen. That man is supposed to go and spend time with God in prayer and in his word. God created an office in the church to allow that man to do that. That's called the office of a deacon. Why? Because the seeking out of the word and its delivery to the people is so important. You don't want any stumbling blocks in the way. And so this week, studying throughout the week, and then Friday came. And around 10 o'clock on Friday, it's like the word just opened. And it began to speak to me. And God said, tell that to them. Tell it to them. And the more I read, the more my heart grew. And very often in that moment, my heart burst to tell you. Like, I wish in that moment I could just shut my Bible and walk in this door and say, you're all here. Let's go. I have something that God has revealed to me. See, in essence, that that long explanation that I don't often get into is meant to say, God, we believe God sends messages for the people. And God knows who's going to be here. Because, listen, very often my desired, like, I wish you could know the amount of times where I've wanted to preach one thing and God says to preach another. Because this week, I was going to preach from Galatians 5. That was the plan all week. And then God said, no, you're not. And I've learned, you know what? God knows who's going to be here. And God knows what people need. And God knows the condition of your heart. And as I sat here and I looked around and I saw all the various people and all the various situations and all the struggles and all the possible conditions of your life, I am left to say, God, you know. You alone know. And Peter rises up on this day. He waited for 40 days to say this. How do I know that? Because Jesus told him, go into Jerusalem, go into the room, Pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to descend on high and then speak. Peter didn't know when. He didn't know what he was going to say. But he was waiting for God to speak through him. And then Peter begins this message about Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me because there's a small, I don't don't, don't know how big, so I don't want to give, I don't want to quantify it. But there's a group of people who know who he's talking about. Because his fame had spread in a region and maybe the surrounding regions. But if you look at where these people come from, there's probably a lot of people who have no idea who he's talking about. Like some of these people traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And they're just going like perhaps they did yearly to celebrate this feast. And so they gather together and he begins to talk about Jesus. 
And here's one thing. Here's, there's really a number of things that he covers here, but there's a few things I want to get to you this morning. The first thing that he tries to show you is that Jesus was prophesied about by that great king, David. And so David, back in the Psalms, begins to tell us all about the resurrection, and yet they have no idea, and even David himself likely has no idea the full extent of what he's talking about. He's thinking in Psalm 16 about the hard place that he is in and how God will deliver him. And that there are all these different things that he is thinking just relative to his own experience. And yet what he doesn't know is that those same words that he was speaking about his local situation have a much broader meaning about a completely different king who would reign in Jerusalem forever. His name was Jesus. And he wasn't talking about the general resurrection, which is to come in the future. He was talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, what they expected was this. There's going to come a day where this figure is going to come. That figure's name was the Christ, the Messiah. See, Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? That's kind of maybe how we think of it, but it's not. Christ is a title, And that title, Christ, is also means Messiah. And so if we take that title and we track it back to the Old Testament, what we'll know is that all of these prophets in the Old Testament are foretelling a day when this person, the Messiah, will come and save the people from their sins. And so the natural mind and the corrupted man takes over that Revelation and infects it with expectations that are not aligned with what God is saying. Or in other words, man begins to expect a type of person that is not the type of person God promised. And so for hundreds of years, these people have gone through the Assyrian captivity, 700 years before Christ comes. Almost 600 years before Christ comes, the Babylonians come and overtake them. Then you got the Greeks, then you, or excuse me, you got the Persians, you got the Greeks, you got the Romans. All of these people, and they're consistently in bondage and slaves and slaves and slaves. And so these people, these Jewish people begin to morph who God is and the man, the Messiah that is to come, they can begin to morph him into what would be convenient for their life. Does that sound familiar? Goodness gracious, what people have made God out to be. And that's why very often I feel like he's just in American eyes, the Christian Santa Claus. And when he doesn't deliver to your doorstep and put on your porch the exact gift that you want, then God is not real. But what if your thought about who God was all the while was designed to fit what you wanted, not who he was? What if the problem is your own invention of God? And what if... He has always been who he was and always will be who he was and told you exactly who he was, but you never deigned to pick up the Bible and discover who he was. Like, what if the fault is yours? Oh, I can't believe that. I got to numb myself. I got to numb myself. I don't want to believe that I made a mistake, that I sinned, that I failed to see what was clearly revealed to me. But listen, we've all got to face that. The most experienced Christian to the newest Christian to the lost person all have to face moments in our lives where we have conceptualized God differently than what he really is. And where we have to change our hearts. 
or ask God to change our hearts to align our hearts with who he really is, not with who we want him to be. And so they begin to expect this this David-like character, this figment of their imagination that would come and he would kill thousands. And as they triumphed him coming in, he'd kill the ten thousands. And he would be as tall and brawny and strong as King Saul, a head and shoulders above everybody else. And they thought he would do these actions like Moses delivering the Red Sea and throwing down the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. Certainly that's who the Messiah is going to be. And though he had characteristics of all of those men, it was not the characteristics they wanted him to have. Or in other words, you're right, God does have all power. And so people today say, I want God to use that all power to prevent me from ever experiencing pain. So you acknowledge the characteristic he has. But we don't want to accept the possibility that he employs it for an altogether different reason than what would make us happy. You see, he gets up and he begins to say, you completely missed who the Messiah is. You completely missed what David was talking about in Psalm 16. He wasn't talking about his own mortal, corruptible body. He was not talking about his own kingship. He was talking about a king that would come in the future. And he would spiritually reign over a spiritual kingdom. And he would be put to death. But praise God, his body would not see corruption. He would rise from the dead. And then he looks at those people and he says... You know this has happened. You know that Jesus rose from the dead. You know that you're starting a conspiracy and you paid off those Roman soldiers that they might not testify of the reality that the stone burst away and that Jesus exited that stone completely incorruptible. You know what happened. He confronts them with truth. Imagine what it must have been like in their hearts. Have you ever been slowly, or, uh, I don't want to say this, have you ever been confronted about something that you were defiant about initially, and then slowly as somebody begins to talk to you and accuse you, you begin to be convinced that not only were you not right, you were absolutely wrong in what you did and how you did it. And you know, as they're laying out their case and they're discussing you, you know that feeling that comes over you that stops at the top, starts at the top of your head, and that embarrassment that settles in your heart. You say, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I was wrong. And then the reality of the effects of what you've done slowly begin to sink in. I mean, I wasn't just a little wrong. I was really wrong. That's what's going on here. Peter looks at these men and he says, You have killed the Holy One, the Son of God. Consider for a moment, they had been numb for almost two months. Like, don't you think... Killing an innocent man is bad enough, which they clearly did. And they knew they did. 
And as they were doing it, they knew they were doing it. And he was just an innocent man, not guilty of the charges of rebellion that they accused him of being guilty of according to Roman law. Like not only was he innocent of that and not deserving of death, but now Peter's adding another layer. Not only was he innocent of that charge, there was never a moment where guile was found in his mouth. He never said anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. He was the holy son of God. He tells us in verse 32. I'm not just preaching this. You have all been witnesses to this. You know, one thing that I I love, I'm so thankful that I heard this as a child. Religion today is so static and unemotional and stagnant so often. It's Bible verses quoted and theological terms wrapped together. It's abstract. There's there's this culture that thinks it's wise and thinks that by by knowing the Bible and by quoting Bible verses and and trying trying to interpret every jot and tittle that that is what God wants. But I'm glad, though, that has a place that at the core of the true, undefiled Christian religion is that it is an experience between my soul and God. It is something you experience and you come to know and feel and sense and perceive with all of not only the the feelings, but the intellect and the emotions, every part of you, God can speak to. He does here. He speaks to these men. And he says, you saw it. You're witnesses of it. And what are we witnesses to? Well, he brilliantly, Peter puts what happens in Joel 2 with what happened in the story of Jesus. And he brings it all relevant to that day. It's just it's so brilliant. It's amazing what he does here. That same Holy Spirit is speaking to you today. God talks to people today. I mean, just don't numb yourself yet. Give me a minute, okay? Do you really think that the God of the universe who created all that is is limited in his ability to speak personally to your heart? No, I believe God is compelled to do that. Compelled by the highest virtue which he has, which is love. God wants to speak to your heart. Listen, it is not sufficient for God to, for himself. For us it should be sufficient. But for himself, it is not sufficient for him to just broadcast one general message and say, well, take it or leave it. No, God doesn't do that. God says, proclaim the general truth. And then I, through the power of my Holy Spirit, will take that truth and orchestrate it to fit the needs of every single individual heart. What a blessing that God does that for us. He begins to speak here. And he concludes this message and here's what he says. 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. You know that word assuredly? Beyond any doubt. I so often see people today, and it's so... It's nothing sort of tr- short of tragic. And I've seen it so many times. Where people straddle the fence between being captivated and in all of the truth and the cost that truth would have if they believed it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, think of a fence, and they're straddling this fence and saying, you know what? Wow. There's something deep within me that's saying, that's true. And in the very least, in the very least, I need to consider it deeply. But then the other foot begins to think about But if I do, think of all the things I'd have to change in my life. Think of all the admissions of error in the past that I would have to make. One of the reasons why we ought to be careful with our words, especially um, words of, uh, how do I want to say it? Words that are, are, are of confidence and presumption is that when you, have, when you say something, you say, you know, I know it's this way. And you act like you know it's this way. Then when God begins to reveal to you that it's not that way, your confidence makes it all the much harder to change your mind and accept what God has revealed. What God wants from all people at all times, listen, I'm confident about what I believe, but I'm open to listen to anybody who wants to tell me something. Because I'm not looking to be the man without error. I'm looking for the hungry searcher of truth. That's who I want to be. I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. Do you want to know the truth? Are you willing to not straddle the fence and consider the cost? And just say, Lord, wherever it's at, I want the truth. He proclaims it so powerfully. He says, I want you to know beyond any doubt that God hath made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. The man you killed is the Messiah, and furthermore, he's God himself. The numbness wore off. And the numbness wore off at this point. And suddenly, they're not begging lost people to come to church. They're not reasoning the scriptures with them. They're not guilting their children that are lost to go to the altar. No, not at all. Because the numbness wore off. And the full pain 
of having your knowing that your sins crucified God himself had their full impact. What do we lack today here in this place? Perhaps the lack of numbness wearing off. So think of it like this. And and don't take this in an absolute way. Because I know this is more complicated than how how I'm going to simplify it. Very often what we look at is, you know, we've got to go and, and we've got these lost people and we really got to get them. You know, people who are, don't know the Lord, we really got to drive in the nail. The nail's already driven in. The truth is the truth. Right? They've sinned against God. They're guilty. Their sins cause God to die. And they'll experience the full weight of consequences given by the Almighty God eternally for sinning against God. And that is eternal hell and separation from all that is good. God himself. And so what is it our job to do? Maybe try to help the numbness wear off of that reality. Maybe create an environment where the Holy Spirit peels back the numbing power. That's why it's so important the way that we manage our home, the way we live, the way we do things is because all of those things, parents, that we permit in our home are part of numbing our children's hearts to the gospel and the reality. And if they know moments after leaving here, they can numb themselves and forget it. If they know that you're never going to be compelled by the Holy Spirit on a random Thursday to speak to them about the condition of their soul. And maybe if they just hold on a little longer. Listen, Peter confronts them straight on. And none of those things have to occur. The people cry out, what do we do now? What do we do? You know, considering the fact that these were the very people who killed Jesus. Wow. What a powerful effect. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. Not to that degree. This morning. If you're lost today. The wound, the brokenness, the sin in you is still there. And it's real. And God hates sin. And God will punish sin unequivocally and unapologetically. God will punish sin. And there remains a Savior from your sin. He can save your soul. Forever. Now listen, I, I, I'm trying to close this morning, but I've got to say this. What we do is good. We should do this. We should meet together every week. We should hear the proclamation of the word. But that in and of itself has a numbing effect on people. So this is the point in the message where I always feel like I am 
sermonizing you. Or that you might think that I am doing some catch-all preacher's tactic on you. And I'm not. At all. I'm not trying to get you to come to the altar and seek the Lord. I'm not. I'm not trying to do that. I am terrified of the condition of your soul. I've said this before, but consider it for a moment. What if one of these people here, right now, died this week and never had made peace with God? What would our church do? I think we would be a wreck. We wouldn't have to call for prayer meeting. We would just have it. Begging God to mend the confusion and brokenness in our own hearts. Maybe some begging God for answers. And maybe other lost people begging God that they're not next. This morning, there is a spiritual reality exists beyond the boundaries of what you see right now. It's not about church. And it's not about causing and affecting something happening in a religious setting. It's about your soul and God. And have you grown numb? And might I add this? Saved friend, has your soul grown numb to the condition that your loved one is in? Are you numb? This morning, this account is so vivid to me. So vivid. And if you're lost this morning and you don't know God, let me give you a piece of advice. Don't numb yourself. Don't. Don't run from. Run to Him. I have some scars on my body. And I like them, actually. I have one on my wrist. When I was in high school, I was a long jumper. And I was learning this new way to long jump. And as clumsy as I was, when I came down, my hand hit the sand, and the spike in my shoe hit my hand, and then it cut it. Well, that thing bled like crazy. But eventually, I kept working on it, I kept working on it, and it was that very thing that caused me to do better than what I had done before. And so that scar is this humorous reminder to me of how sometimes life is clumsy and you make a lot of mistakes, but then you can get better. I like it. Some of you may have had surgeries, life-threatening surgeries, and you say, you know what, the, the scar ruins the beauty. Ah, oh, yes, but doesn't it proclaim the grace of God? Embrace it. That's what my unforgiven sin when I was lost is like. There's a scar there. There's a memory of who I was, what I was, lost and in sin. And I cherish that day when the pain no longer is there. 
and I don't have to numb it anymore. It's just there. And now it's permanently fixed to me, but it's healed. This morning, if you don't know the Lord, Sister Ashley, if you'd get for us a song, I'd invite you to come and to pray. If you'd like, pray in your seat if you would like. In the very least, I pray that you would consider sincerely what the Lord might be speaking to you today.